Hello, everybody, and um, welcome. It's my uh, great pleasure to welcome you all to this uh, webinar, um, which is entitled The Politics of Representation, Feminist, Feminist Media Studies in the Middle East. And it's an event co-hosted by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Hamad bin Khalifa University and the LSE Middle East Center. Um, I'm very happy to uh, welcome you to this event, which is uh, part of a wider uh, collaboration between the Middle East Center at LSE and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And in particular, the topic of today, feminist, feminist media studies in the Middle East, uh, is a topic that we would like to explore further within this uh, collaboration. So I'm very happy to be chairing uh, this event uh, today with our distinguished speakers. Um, just a quick note about myself. My name is Sophie Richter-Devro. I'm an associate professor in the Women's Society and Development Program at the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Hamid bin Khalifa University. And uh, I'm also an honorary fellow at the Center or European Center for Palestine Studies at Exeter University. Um, today's uh, event, uh, we have um, a list of distinguished speakers. Uh, we will um, start with a welcoming note by uh, Dr. Amal Al-Malki, a founding dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and then proceed with two presentations by um, Dr. Dalia Mustafa and Dr. Polly Withers from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and the LSE Middle East Center, respectively, um, and then continue to uh, uh, Dr. Mark Owen Jones, who will act as discussant of the two uh, papers presented. And uh, after that, uh, we will open, of course, for questions and answers. Um, please note that the event is uh, recorded and we would like to ask you to please um, uh, uh, type your questions into the Q&A box. Uh, you can do that while people are uh, presenting or after when they when they conclude their presentations, but please use the Q and A box at the bottom of the screen uh, to share your questions, which uh, I will then uh, uh, direct to the to the speakers. Um, so uh, let me welcome you all again to this uh, to this webinar, and uh, welcome also again um, our distinguished speakers. Thank you so much for making the time to to be with us today. Um, I think here we can start straight away, and uh, I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Amal Al-Malki, who is the founding dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Hamad bin Khalifa University. Um, and she was also an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Qatar, where she taught courses in writing composition, postcolonial literature, theories of translation, and Islamic feminism. Al-Malki's research interests include the negotiation of identity between East and West, media representations of Arab women, and post-colonial literature. Her book, Arab Women in Arab News, Old Stereotypes and New Media, is published by Bloomsbury Qatar Foundation and Bloomsbury Academic UK in 2012. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Al-Malki, for um, joining us and for uh, presenting the welcoming remarks for this event. Thank you, Dr. Sophie. Uh, good evening and happy International Women's Day. Uh, we at the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Hamad bin Khalifa University pride ourselves in offering the only 
Women's Studies Program in Qatar, Women's Society and Development, that stands as a catalyst in transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary gender approach and a conduit between academia and community. We graduate gender specialists, researchers, and activists, with whom we are sharing our march towards creating a world that is just and equitable. Uh, this panel comes as a part of a young collaboration with LSE, as we've just signed in a, a memorandum of understanding with them, which includes uh, research collaboration, uh, visiting uh, fellowship, uh, student internship, and web events like uh, this one. I would like to acknowledge the men and women on the panel today, Dr. Sophie, Dr. Dalia, Dr. Mark, and Dr. Polly. Uh, happy Women's Day to all of you. Uh, I would like to also thank our co-organizers in the Middle Eastern uh, Middle East Center in London School of Economics and Political Science. Thank you and have a lovely evening. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Amal. Um, so let's move straight away to our first speaker, uh, Dr. Dalia Mustafa. Uh, Dr. Dalia is an associate professor in the Women's Society and Development Program, the one that Dr. Amal just spoke about at Hamad bin Khalifa University. On this panel, she will discuss um, women's form formidable role and influence in the making of Arab cinema. Her areas of expertise include post-colonial and comparative literature, Middle Eastern cinema, and Arab cultural studies with a focus on the intersection between gender, society, and politics. She's the editor of Women, Culture, and the January 2011 Egyptian Revolution, published in 2017. And her latest co-authored monograph was published in 2020, entitled The Egyptian Coffee House, Culture, Politics, and Urban Space. Thank you so much, Dalia, for joining. And we look forward to listening to your talk. Thank you very much, Sophie, and thanks uh, everyone on the panel and all of those uh, attendees with us tonight. Uh, a very happy International Women's Day to all of us, and uh, I hope uh, you have a great year ahead. Uh, so uh, I'm going to share uh, the slides for uh, my presentation now. And uh, as uh, uh, Sophie has said, uh, it is entitled uh, women's formidable role and influence in the making uh, of Arab cinema. Um, so uh, uh, this um, word, the making of Arab cinema, is very intentional because um, uh, I regard uh, women's role um, not just as, uh, um, you know, uh, images uh, reflecting um, culture and uh, society and Arab cinema, but they have actually taken an active part in the shaping and uh, progress of uh, Arab cinema since the early decades of uh, the 20th century. Uh, so I'm going to start actually with Egypt, uh, where uh, we uh, had the major uh, industry, cinema industry, and I would like to start uh, by this question. Um, in what ways uh, uh, can we uh, see uh, women's role in the making of Arab cinema since the early uh, decades of the 20th century? And uh, this poster here uh, of uh, the film Layla uh, was actually the first Egyptian film, and it was produced by a woman, and her name 
was Aziza Amir, and she played the protagonist role in the film as well. Uh, so uh, starting uh, with this uh, early um, uh, industry that was uh, taking shape in Egypt, uh, and Egypt, uh, as some of you might know, was uh, referred to as uh, uh, Hollywood on the Nile. <laughs> because uh, of uh, the importance of the cinema industry. In fact, uh, after World War II, uh, the cinema industry was the second after the textile industry. And uh, this remained uh, for a very long time, uh, possibly until uh, 2010, Egypt remained the major cinema industry in the whole of the Middle East. Maybe now it has been surpassed by Iran. Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, okay, so uh, female film producers and stage actresses like Aziza Amir, like Asya Daher, Mary Queenie, Fatima Rushdi. These women were actually producers of films. So they had their own companies and uh, they shaped uh, the making of film in the early decades of the 20th century. And also we see a very strong presence of singers and dancers, uh, actresses, stage actresses. Uh, some of their names are here in front of you. Uh, musicals were a major part of cinema and entertainment in Egypt. Uh, so uh, some of these uh, uh, professionals in uh, uh, dancing and singing and acting um, uh, played roles in uh, the musicals and uh, um, because cinema was also perceived as an entertainment venue. Oftentimes female protagonists were symbolic of the nation and this is uh, an important uh, um, aspect to maybe uh, ponder and contemplate because um, uh, oftentimes we see uh, women uh, are associated with uh, civilization, with the land, uh, with the, the nation that is aspiring for liberation. And also uh, in Egyptian cinema, we see uh, literary adaptations into cinema. And this was very important because uh, there was a high illiteracy rate in the country. So uh, through cinema, uh, the audience um, who could not read literature uh, would also know about important names in the literary field like Nagib Mahfouz, like Yusuf Idris, like uh, Latifa Zayed. So um, women played a formidable role in the shaping of the beginning of uh, cinema in Egypt. Okay, so uh, as you can see, uh, some of uh, the images and posters here uh, of uh, older films, uh, you will notice this, you will notice straight away to what extent the image of women on film posters was uh, uh, such uh, an astonishing thing. So they were extremely visible uh, in the public sphere, yeah, because these posters, of course, were usually uh, uh, were uh, available on the streets or uh, outside the, the cinemas, the cinema houses themselves. So uh, you would not really see a poster from that period uh, without uh, having the image of woman 
so integral to it. Uh, and this in itself needs a study on its own, I think, in my view. Uh, here, for example, uh, with Ummu Kulthum, uh, when she got uh, a bit older, of course, uh, possibly in the 1960s, uh, this image, you see her with the Sphinx. And this is a very revealing image because it shows straight away the connection between this great singer and the land and civilization and history. So this, uh, you know, this is what I meant by oftentimes we see uh, women in uh, cinema and uh, uh, in uh, the artistic field uh, in general being associated with the land and with uh, civilization. Also, the visibility of female stage actresses, singers, dancers, dancers and journalists in the public sphere, particularly during the interwar period, 1920 to 1940. And there were catalysts for this visibility. The 1919 revolution played a very important part, the rise in women's access to education, and of course, the struggle for national independence uh, from the British colonial role. And to contextualize this form of visual vis visibility in the public sphere, I'd like to engage key ideas from an important article by the Iranian-American scholar Fakhri Haqqani. Um, she finds the theory of visibility as a site of per performativity for social practices and relations between women useful in illustrating how the 1919 Revolution uh, led women to be visible on the streets in mass demonstrations and protests in both urban and rural areas. So this was a moment in uh, Egyptian history when women from different uh, class sectors, whether uh, in rural areas or urban areas, went on the streets to demand, of course, the return of their beloved leader Saad Zaghloul and the end of uh, the British colonial rule. Um, and women who worked as stage actresses, singers, and dancers also played a leading role in the emergence of a visual public sphere in Egypt. And these women came to perform in cinema in uh, the 1920s and afterwards. So Haqqani argues that the visibility of Egyptian women in the visual public sphere led to pushing forward a desire to see and be seen in the cultural field as uh, archival material demonstrates. And women writers, artists, as well as uh, onlookers exercise their essential role uh, through the corporeal performance of visibility to see and to be seen on the public stage. Women artists and writers in general moved up the ladder of social class to elite status as they gained fame and wealth. And of course, uh, uh, some of you might know that uh, uh, some of uh, uh, the women singers and dancers and actresses uh, who came to fame and went later on actually uh, came from very modest backgrounds from rural, uh, rural areas. Uh, one example of this is Ummu Kulthum herself. However, Haqqani also uh, provides this crucial observation, these women made visual display of themselves on numerous other levels as well as immigrants, mothers, wives, daughters, Muslims, Jews, and Christians. This visual display in public stretched the speciality of women's artistic performative roles beyond their profession 
and into, into heterogeneous ideological, religious, familial, and socio-ethnic backgrounds. This public visibility then was used as a space for establishing social relations among women artists and writers, but most importantly, with their female audiences. These women related to each other by seeing and imagining themselves and the others in a wide range of settings, such as the press, theaters and cinema, to streets, shops, villages, factories, and households. And I think this is really a crucial remark because it shows the connection between those who uh, were very present visually on, uh, in the public sphere, actresses, singers, dancers, and so on, and the female audiences and how they connected with one another. When we move uh, uh, to later periods, uh, uh, late 1950s, 1960s, uh, we see really the power of representation and cinema as a tool of empowerment and freedom of expression. And the title of the, our talk today is The Politics of Representation. And I want to argue really that uh, these women actresses and producers and so on represented themselves and also their female audiences whom they were able uh, to connect with. So uh, this is why I see uh, this uh, um, making of the Arab cinema uh, throughout the 20th century uh, is uh, uh, to a great extent uh, attributed to women uh, producers and uh, actresses and filmmakers. So these are some of uh, uh, the themes possibly that uh, were um, uh, presented in films and uh, uh, we remember iconic films around these issues. For example, this uh, image here from Fatan Hamama's uh, um, film, I Want a Solution, uh, is quite iconic. Midaq uh, Ali, which was adapted from uh, Anajib Mahfouz's uh, novel, uh, the image of Hind Rustam, uh, who uh, was like an idol, uh, uh, very much loved, uh, played uh, amazing uh, varieties of roles. So Arab cinema has provided women with a creative space to challenge social class, gender, and racial injustices, to transgress taboos, as well as to portray resistance during times of wars and revolutions. These were key themes which have been integrated into almost all national cinemas in the Arab world. So with the advent of uh, national cinema industries uh, after uh, the colonial period in Algeria, for example, uh, uh, in Tunisia, uh, uh, also uh, in the 1960s uh, and 70s in Lebanon, and then Palestine uh, in the aftermath of 1967, we see women playing important roles uh, in those areas. With the early 1970s, uh, we see uh, a strong, uh, or the beginning of a strong presence of female documentary filmmakers. And this was really crucial because uh, in the period, say, between the 50s to the early 70s, we do not see uh, female directors. We see a strong presence of uh, uh, actresses, uh, possibly producers, but not uh, directors. 
And again, I think this issue needs further investigation and research uh, by uh, students and academics. Some of the names that uh, uh, became uh, really important, uh, possibly pioneers of documentary filmmaking, including, because this list is by no means exhaustive, Atiyat al-Abnudi, Nay Masri, Jocelyn Saab, Nabiha Lotfi, and Arab Lotfi. And then we come to the new millennium and the spectacular rise in the number of female filmmakers across the Arab world. So the making now of both feature and documentary films by, uh, to a great extent, the new technology and the digital sphere have facilitated this rise. And then uh, we see uh, to what extent the 2011 Arab revolutions and uprisings uh, have inspired many women to come into the field of filmmaking. And then uh, we also see female filmmakers working in countries which did not have cinema industries in, in the 20th century. One example is Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Sudan. And these filmmakers of the younger generation, we see them addressing new themes. And uh, this is really crucial, uh, uh, how they uh, have embraced their era, their time, and uh, the uh, uh, subjects uh, of concern to them, sexual harassment, the influence of social media on the image of girls and women and how they perceive themselves, migration and displacement, girlhood and adolescence, the widespread of polygamy in Arab societies, divorce, poverty, and deprivation of work uh, and education. Uh, and uh, these are some of the strong female voices in Arab cinema today, in my view. Again, the list is by no means exhaustive. Uh, these are uh, just uh, a few examples. Uh, you can see from the posters here, um, uh, the different varieties of uh, uh, representations uh, and themes. Also very strong uh, female actresses like Fatima al-Banawi from Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is Anne-Marie Jasser, uh, uh, who uh, is quite a formidable filmmaker uh, from uh, Palestinian origins. And also uh, some uh, important work from the older generation as well. So we uh, see, for example, Mai Masri, Najwa Najjar, uh, producing uh, important films. Uh, this image here is from Mai Masri's latest film, Beirut, Eye in the Storm, Arab Lotfi. Uh, and of course, this amazing contribution by Arab women uh, has not uh, gone unnoticed so we see a strong body of publications on Arab women in film as well. This is only in English and this is only a selection, but there is a very strong body in Arabic as well, an enormous uh, collection of articles, academic articles. Uh, so uh, I think I'll stop here and maybe we can continue our discussion later on. Thank you very much. I'm sorry for the interruption that happened before. Thank you so much, Dalia. That was great, and uh, you gave us really such a such a powerful overview of the of the development of Arab women in, in Arab cinema. So uh, I think that lays really great groundwork for for thinking about how different forms of representations have changed his, historically, and what kinds of impacts and dynamics that might um, also trigger socially, politically culturally, economically, et cetera. 
Um, I just want to encourage our audience to already jot down some questions in the Q&A box, uh, which you can find at the bottom of the screen, in the middle of, of, of the screen. So while, while the speakers are talking, just feel free to already post some, some questions. But of course, you can also pose them at the end of um, when, when all three speakers have, uh, have com concluded their presentations. So thank you so much, Dalia. Um, let's move to our second speaker, Dr. Polly Withers. Thank you so much, Polly, for, for joining this panel and in fact for organizing it because uh, Polly was one of the main people behind the organizations of the organization of this um, webinar. So Polly Withers is a Leverhulme, Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the LSE Middle East Center. On this panel, she will discuss problematizing feminist media studies from the Middle East, gendering media in Palestine. At the LSE Middle East Center, Polly leads the project Neoliberal Visions, Gendering Consumer Culture and its Resistance in the Levant. Polly's interdisciplinary work questions and explores how gender, sexuality, race and class intersect in popular culture and commercial media in the global South. She's particularly interested in examining how different media and cultural modalities frame, produce, or challenge dominant subjectivities and social relations in the Middle East and beyond. Thank you, Polly, over to you. Thank you, Sophie, and um, thank you everyone for being here. Um, it's very exciting to be at our first official event with HBKU, um, so thank you everyone, um, and thank you to the audience. Um, so my short contribution to today draws on my previous and um, present work on popular culture and um, contemporary media practices in Palestine in, um, in particular, but um, also more broadly in the Levant. Um, my specific contribution to today, to today is um, departing from a number of premises, the first of which um, is that in the past kind of decade or so, there's been an explosion of research in feminist media studies that's tracing the very um, complex, ambiguous, fractured ways that feminist politics, feminist movements, femininities and masculinities more broadly are being reshaped under late modern capitalism. Um, so this very exciting body of work has given us very generative concepts through which to explore how contemporary media practices are shaping discourses of gender and sexuality. Um, Sarah Bonet Weiser's co uh, concept of popular feminism, for instance, Ros Gill's hugely generative um, concept of post-feminism, and Catherine Rotterberg's concept of neoliberal feminism have um, you know, increasingly been used to theorize how gender and sexuality are enacted, challenged, resisted, etc., in the contemporary media. However, um, this, and this is my kind of first entrance point into my own work, and that I'm going to share a little bit of today, um, these discussions have very largely taken place in the global north. Um, so we have a lot of work on, for example, social media, digital feminisms in America, Western Europe, but very little has been written on the global South in general and the Middle East in particular. There are of course um, many very brilliant exceptions to this rule. My colleague, for instance, Simidel Dosakan's um, work on post-feminism in Nigeria um, is beginning to theorize um, post-feminism, Rosgill's post-feminism as a transnational practice. Um, however, this work is still kind of in its infancy. In the Middle East in particular, there's very little engagement with the ways that um, 
concepts like popular feminism, post-feminism, neoliberal feminism are or are not being um, adapted, reworked, traveling, or even used in, in the Middle East. So this is something I'm really interested in in, in my own work. And it's something that um, Sophie and I are trying to think about in this project more broadly, is kind of what happens when we, we problematize feminist media studies from the Middle East. Do these concepts travel to the Middle East? If so, how? How are they used? How are they reshaped? How are they pushed back on? Um, and kind of um, this leads to my kind of more empirical entrance point that I'm interested in theorizing feminist media studies from the Middle East because this has not been so much um, so much kind of done, I guess. Um, my other point of departure is that while feminist media studies has produced this very rich body of work um, that analyzes social media, digital feminism, it said much less, feminist media studies in general has said much less about music and popular culture. Um, so in my work, I'm interested in foregrounding music and popular culture and using feminist media studies as kind of analytical tools to theorize um, how popular culture in the Middle East in general, Palestine in particular, is enacting, challenging, reshaping ideas about gender and sexualities. So that's my kind of first point of departure um, for the talk today and my work in general. Uh, my second point of departure is that where um, cultural production has been foreground in discussion of the Middle East, and I'm thinking mainly here of Middle East studies, um, Arab cultural studies, um, cultural production has largely been theorized as a site through which young adults either resist Israeli settler colonization in particular, or resist kind of state level authoritarianism. Um, so we have a lot of fascinating studies, Middle East studies, Arab cultural studies work that theorizes kind of um, cultural production through resistance meta narratives, which of course um, is you know important. Of course, young Palestinians resist Israeli settler colonial domination through art and culture. However, in my work, I'm interested in thinking also about what gets left out when we focus only on these kind of spectacular meta narratives of resistance, of dissent, um, of kind of uh, kind of I guess collective political action. So I'm interested in the work that I'm doing in thinking about the more nuanced way that popular culture is um, engaged in reproducing power relations through the intersectional lines of gender, race, class, and sexuality. So these are my kind of two entrance points to the topic. One is this kind of global north dominance in feminist media studies and a kind of lack of engagement with music and popular culture. Um, and then a kind of Arab cultural studies point that I'm trying to think about the ways that popular culture, music um, is also engaged with feminist politics, feminist movements, the enactment challenge um, and a resistance to different ideas about gender and sexuality. Um, so in the rest of this short presentation today, I'm going to use two songs. Um, one by Bashar Murad, who's a young Palestinian artist in Jerusalem, and another by the hip-hop group Dam, um, who I'm sure many of you know, who are kind of very prolific hip-hop outfit in, in, in Palestine. Um, I'm going to use these two songs to um, kind of discuss the ways that popular culture, uh, media texts are enacting ideas about gender and sexuality in Palestine in particular. Um, vague point on methods, I've chosen these two songs because they um, in one way or another engage with ideas about gender and sexuality, the body, um, the kind of social uh, enforcement of heteronormativity. So I've specifically selected these songs um, for their kind of engagement with some sort of feminist politics. Um, this work stems more broadly 
um, from my two-year ethnography on the kind of gender politics, the everyday gender politics of popular music in Palestine and its diaspora. Um, so just a brief um, note on methods. Um, so I'm going to now yeah, play you this first song. Oops, that is the PowerPoint that I don't want. Um, so this song, Kulambichawas, uh, Everyone's Getting Married, is, as I said, by Bashar Murad. Bashar is the son of one of the founders of the uh, 1980s resistant, resistance band Sabrine, um, from, from a very musical family. His uncle and his, his dad were both in the band. Um, he has a small record, well, it's quite big actually. He has a recording studio in East Jerusalem um, where he you know, writes most of his music. Um, he's also the only publicly identifying queer Palestinian living in Palestine and a, a great deal of his work um, engage is engaged in some sort of critique of uh, gender and sexuality. So that's his kind of his his canon. So I'm going to just play you this song, which I think came out in 2018, um, and I hope you can hear it. interesting about this um this piece um, I mean in an immediate sense we can of course read this song as enacting a critique on the expectation to socially reproduce through the heteronormative marriage contract the whole the whole video revolves around poking fun at um, the notion the institution of marriage and in this sense we can read this track in one way um, as enacting alternative sexualities, alternative uh, masculinities and alternative femini femininities through this kind of queering of um, the institution of marriage with the kind of gender gender bending dress that's going on. Um, and in this sense, we can read the track as exposing the performative in a Butlerian way, the performative nature of gender and sexuality. If gender and sexuality is achieved through clothing, performance, ways of holding the body, then we can kind of see in the Butlerian sense how um, 
gender and sexuality is a kind of regulated fictions, as, as Butler says. Um, and in, in this sense, in a kind of secondary sense, we can also read this um, track as pushing back on Israeli state narratives of pinkwashing. Um, and I have a couple of examples of this in, hang on one second. Um, so by placing kind of obviously queer Palestinian bodies into um, the Palestinian body politic, we have um, a kind of pushback on the ways that Israel self-stylizes itself as a kind of gay haven. Um, this is the this document, Israeli pinkwashing document, which I'm sure some of you have seen before, that equates um, democracy in the Middle East and the, Israel's apparent claim to being the only um, the only democracy in the Middle East because it's the only space where gay officers have the right to shoot and maim Palestinians. Um, and as another example, um, Israel kind of presenting itself as the gay capital of the Middle East because it has uh, it's the only place, according to the Israeli. Um, the Israeli state where um, LGBTQ plus um, persons can be kind of visibly um, gay. So in this sense, inserting a um, visibly queer Palestinian body into um, a digital Palestinian public upends or kind of challenges this, this idea of Israeli, Israeli, um, Israeli pinkwashing. So in this sense, we can see some kind of critical things going on. There's a one, on the one hand, this kind of critique of normative ideas about gender and sexuality as enshrined through the heteronormative marriage contract. We can also see this kind of political, um, political sort of challenge again, I guess, of um, Israeli uh, pinkwashing through, through such digital pro productions at um, as this. At the same time, however, I want to pause on the, uh, the fact that these challenges are taking place through this prism of visibility to think about, you know, what visibility um, does kind of politically. Um, so um, the fact that um, the kind of the challenge, the gender, the gender challenge is being here staged through this kind of humorous play with, um, with, with dress and with marriage, um, and I mean, I think that the the kind of playing with with clothes like clothing like that is meant to be it's meant to elicit a humorous response. Um, this is a kind of I think functions politically very interestingly in that humor is also, of course, a boundary drawing project. It creates a divide between those who get the joke and those who um, who don't get the joke. So in this sense, um, the audience for whom kind of queering the institution of marriage elicits humor is the audience who already perceives um, marriage to be a kind of burden, an expectation, um, something that confines one's agency um, within this kind of heteronormative grid. Um, so it's 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 on the one hand critiquing gender and sexuality, but on the other hand, kind of pushing a narrative, or not pushing, but kind of at the same time articulating a narrative that that um, kind of pushes for a youthful desire to live a life unburdened by the expectations of others. And so in this sense, we have on the one hand, the kind of critical angle of the song, but at the same time, this kind of emergence of liberal personhood, this, like, this kind of idea that um, one is free when um, living kind of as a complete individual in a way that um in a, in a way that one has kind of bodily autonomy personal autonomy choice these sorts of things so this is at the same time a, a kind of liberal idea of agency and of personhood is also being enacted in this song um, and I'm thinking here of the fact that um while for many people you know marriage is constraining for many other people marriage is still a site of economic 
um, security um, and not something that's funny. It's something that actually guarantees um, one's ability to kind of exist in the world. So my point is that cultural texts like this are very interesting because they kind of articulate ambiguous um, meanings. We have on the one hand the social and political critique of gender and sexuality and the kind of norms and hierarchies these um, give rise to. But at the same time, um, we have this kind of emergence at this, uh, as well of liberal personhood, this idea of choice, individuality, being kind of the, um, the sort of signifiers of, of freedom kind of um, writ large. And in this sense, I think it's very interesting that the, the critique takes place through dress at the same time. Um, dress, of course, and kind of queer visibility is very much part of the Stonewall idea of um, gender and sexual sexuality-based liberation, um, coming out of the closet, being visible in public space, um, are all these kind of, again, very liberal ideas about um, what it means to achieve queer emancipation. Um, so this is not to invalidate texts like this, it's to point to the kind of multiple ideas about gender and sexuality that are traveling through one kind of cultural document at the same time, um, which I think make these, these sorts of cultural texts very interesting. Um, so yeah, it kind of has, it, it foregrounds this very, very um, widely known sort of global notion of queer modernity premised on um, playing with dress, which is also sort of a consumer practice. Um, so this next song is by uh, Dam. Um, so Dam are a very well-known hip hop group. Um, they emerged at kind of um, in the late 1990s when, um, Kind of in the context of the Oslo Accords and, and um, Palestinian society opening to global uh, media products in general. So they're kind of they're rooted in the sort of early expansion of what's now known as the alternative music scene in, in Palestine. Um, this song was released on International Women's Day uh, in 2014, I think. Um, no, sorry, 2019, same year as Bashar's song. Um, and um, it's called Jastadikon, which means... Um, your body, of uh, my body of theirs, or body of theirs. Um, so I'm going to play the song and then I'll discuss some of the kind of ambiguities that also emerge in pieces like this. هدول مقاييس جسدك لازم يسموها جسدكهم الكاف تعود إليك وجسدك يعود إلهم روح حرة داخل جسد غير حر أخذ لي وقت أفهم جسدي جسدي الأنثوي جسدك بروح بنام بغيب بغلط بتوب من سامح وبرجع بعيد للأبد ماشي مع ورقة تصريح من الطبيب جسدي بكفي غلطة واحدة انزلاق واحد صورة واحدة فيديو واحد كم من عين في عجسدي كم من وجه في لجسدي جسدي أنثوي جسدي عربي جسدي العربي الأنثوي كم ضمير في لجسدي في أنا وفي أنت في إحنا وفي همي هم ضد إحنا وإنت ضد أنا الكل ضد أنا وأنا ضد الكل حتى بالنضال عندي أضعاف من مسؤوليتكم إذا أنت بتقاوم بتمس في صهيونيتهم إذا أنا بقاوم بمس كمان بذكوريتهم وأدم جسدي واعي للقهر بضل قابل للكسر أخذ لي وقت أتعلم أعشق جسدي جسدي الأنثوي العربي 
وقف قبل مراي خلعت عن عيوني النظارات الاجتماعية لأنهم صنع ذكوري بدي أشوف عيوبي طريق عيوني ضب عيونك هذا النهد إلي ضب إيديك هذا الفخد إلي ضب ملاحظاتك شعر الإيدان وشعر تحت الأباط بس إلي سيطر على تعبير وجهك هدول الكم أكسترا كيلو إلي السلوليد إلي تشققات الجلد علامات الحمل بس إلي الشاب التواليل الشمات وراك الحبوب كله بس إلي هذا المطبخ مش بس إلي بس هذا things I want to pull out about this piece um, kind of similarly to the first piece is that on the one hand and in a very kind of powerful kind of obvious sense almost this is a you know a very powerful um, Arab, Arab feminist critique of a variety of hegemonies um, on the one hand Mesa and sorry the um, the singer here is called Mesa Dor she joined the group in 2014 I think um, so you have on the one hand this kind of very powerful critique of the beauty industrial complex and the ways that the beauty industrial complex shapes um, women's kind of psychic or affective relationships with their own bodies. There's a kind of critique of of um, of kind of yeah of, of the kind of capitalist um, reshaping of of um, femininity in this sense. There's also a very powerful sense. Um, or very powerful critique, sorry, of the ways that the Palestinian national movement in its kind of most patriarchal element elements um, funnels women into particular roles. So Mesa says at one point, if I um, resist, you're resisting their Zionism, but I'm resisting, um, I hurt your masculinity by resisting Zionism. That's not the direct quote, but it's something like that. Um, so you have here a critique of, um, a, of kind of patriarchy in the Palestinian national movement by pointing to the ways um, as a discourse, this kind of regulates and shapes ideas about women's role in society. Um, you also have this very powerful critique of um, the kind of Western gaze, I guess, and the way that Mahanti writes about it and the way that um, Arab women in particular are subject to this kind of fetishized colonial um, ways of, of understanding, presenting, um, viewing bodies. So you have these kind of very interesting intersectional feminist critiques, leftist feminist critiques, importantly, I think, um, through which Mesa is kind of um, enacting an alternative relationship with her body in this kind of affective sense. At the same time, however, I think um, the, the second start of the second part of the song, I'm just going to show my screen again because I've got a screenshot of it. The second half of the song, we see how this kind of radical feminist critique um, um, begins to somewhat unravel. We hear how Mesa says um, it took her time to be in love with her body. Um, but standing in front of the mirror, she realized um, she realized that, you know, she was. Uh, she could get rid of all of these multiple gazes that shape her relationship with her body. And she herself takes off her glasses because they're man-made. Um, this is the screenshot here. So for me, in my reading of this song, um, the, this kind of the way that the song shifts here is interesting because it opens something more ambiguous about this kind of powerful intersectional critique against capitalism or um, pa racial uh, patriarchal capitalism. Um, it begins to unravel whereby it's Mesa herself or the kind of fictional person about whom Mesa is singing who becomes responsible for ridding herself of these legacies of these gazes of the beauty industrial complex of kind of um, patriarchal Palestinian nationalism um, the kind of orientalizing colonial gaze more more broadly um, so there's a slippage here I think in that if Mesa when Mesa becomes responsible for um for kind of ridding herself of these gazes 
um sorry i'm just stopping showing the screen she she kind of she she manages somehow to love her body despite these kind of huge vast structures that encourage women to hate their bodies more broadly so we have here this kind of enactment of in my reading anyway this kind of enactment of this liberal body positivity movement whereby you know you can learn individually to have confidence in your body to have confidence in yourself despite these kind of horrifying structural um <laughs> dominations that, that absolutely demand the opposite so it becomes rather than a kind of collective project of struggle against um oppression it becomes the individual's again liberal um capacity or not to learn to be confident love one's body despite kind of these these um vast kind of matrices that that demand the opposite so you have again this kind of interesting or i think interesting um multiplicity of gender and sexuality discourses traveling through a cultural text such as this you have this kind of radical powerful critique um, that is competing with in the way that Stuart Hall meant competing with these other ideas about liberal personhood liberal agency loving oneself body positivity these sorts of things so I think cultural texts like this are very interesting as I said because they give us ambiguous sites for theorizing cultural production um, in the Middle East or in Palestine in particular, beyond these kind of resistance meta-narratives to think about the ambiguous politics through which, um, or that unravel through, through cultural texts. So on the one hand, the kind of critical engagement with ideas about gender and sexuality, and on the other hand, this um, kind of bumping up against liberal ideas of freedom, um, gender equality, uh, loving one's body, being confident, these sorts of things. So. Um, I think I just want to finish to take us back to the kind of um, point of, uh, or kind of the the um, the title of our of our discussion today about representation. Um, I think in in um, in in recent years, representations of non normative subjects of queer subjects, women, um, especially kind of women of color, have proliferated in the mainstream media, um, which has led to this idea of representation mattering. Um, becoming once again the kind of um, point for discussion. So what I really want to do in my work and what I've tried to do here is to think beyond representation, to think more critically about who or what is being represented, um, what who can become visible and what becomes visible. Um, and um, in the process of making something visible, kind of is this necessarily emancipatory or are there kind of more complex contradictions that we also need to think about when dealing with representation so thinking about representation is always something fragmented um ambiguous contradictory um and therefore um, very politically interesting um so i'm going to finish there and sorry about the um zoom difficulties but um yeah Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Polly. That was great. Um, and I think uh, your presentation works really well together with Dahlia's in the sense that we had with Dahlia a very um, in-depth overview of the developments in Arab cinema and with Polly a very close reading of two cultural texts uh, problematizing this, this idea of uh, uh, women's bodies online necessarily being a form of empowerment or emancipation, but rather mm -hmm as Polly showed us so, so clearly, always a site of contestation and ambiguities. So thank you both speakers for these fantastic talks. I just wanna um, encourage all participants to please uh, um, post their questions in the Q&A box, not in the chat box, but in the Q&A box. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I have already seen a few. I picked them up um, uh, after we have heard from our third speaker. So let me introduce to you uh, our third speaker, Dr. Mark Owen-Jones. Thank you, Mark, for uh, agreeing to participate. It's great to have you on the panel. Um, so Mark is an associate professor of Middle East Studies at Hamad bin Khalifa University, where he lectures and researches on political repression and informational control strategies. Um, his recent work focused on the way social media has been used to spread disinformation and fake news in the Middle East. In March 19, 2019, he published The Gulf Information War, Propaganda, Fake News, and Fake Trends, um, the, the Weaponization of Twitter Bots in the Gulf Crisis in the International Journal of Communication. His upcoming book on dis disinformation and deception in the Middle East will be published by Hearst Books and Oxford University Press in 20... No, it has been published. Right, Mark? Yeah. I know, I know. I've lost track. <laughs> has been published by Hearst Books and OUP in 2021. Uh, and there's also another monograph published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press, Political Repression in Bahrain. So thank you so much, Mark. Um, uh, we would like to hear your comments, opinions, um, further ideas on, on the, these two uh, talks that we've just heard. And of course, also learn more about your own research in relation to media studies and, uh, and gender. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll try to keep it quite short because I want to leave plenty of opportunity for questions. And um, I just think the, the two presentations were very complementary in the sense, um, in a way, in terms of also platforms, I think uh, uh, Dahlia's, you know, discussion about Egyptian cinema was both uh, interesting in that it historicized uh, the role of women in a particular country, but also on a particular platform was uh, Polly's discussion about social media, whilst also raising questions of representation, represent, uh, raise questions of medium uh, and platform. And I think it's, it's, very, it's something that we really have to focus on when we deal with um, feminist media studies in the region is the role of platform and media because not only is the technology itself different but the affordances of technology changes and the political uh, context and control over those platforms and the audiences crucially uh, are different and often they're reciprocal and I think it's very interesting for example uh, Polly was discussing social media I was uh, I was fascinated in the idea of this you know looking at uh, uh, not just a song as a cultural text because that's one level but a music video as an addition to that cultural text. And then also the decoding of that cultural text. Obviously we talk about representation being one thing, but how is, how is this being consumed? Who is consuming it? Uh, what are the audiences? Because you know, I think one of the ambiguities about the representation is, is, is this pushing up against uh, sort of more sort of maybe normative ideas. Is it, are there different people who, who this is appealing to? Is that the point or is it, it just reflecting um, how people are actually uh, understanding or approaching these critiques of power. And I think that was really interesting. And I think someone raised the question in, 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 in the, the general chat, which, which made me think of what Dali was talking about, because Dali has you know, talked about women in cinema as both a symbol of the nation, but also women playing an important role in resistance, uh, resisting ideas of gender and class. And I sort of thought, well, this is very, it's almost a, is it an element of a paradox? How do you both represent the nation, but also engage in this form of resistance, especially when it comes to somewhere like Egypt, which obviously there's been political turmoil now, but now in particular, we have the situation where you have a very authoritarian regime. What is the role of women in that particular political context, right? Uh, to what extent are women able to, to exert this or play this role 
of resistance? Uh, and if so, how does that relate to what the state does? I mean, is the state so overbearing in its in its role that it actually shapes the nature of what resistance is seen as acceptable in terms of how women represent themselves? So I think there's a there's a number of things to to unpack here, and obviously resistance. I mean, it's international. Women's Day, we're talking about resistance is almost implicit. We're pushing back against power systems. So, and I and I was very struck again by what Polly said about cultural production and particularly coming out of, of Palestine, so often focusing on, I suppose, in a way, not revolutionary cultural production, but cultural production that relates to resisting either apartheid or just the yeah, oppressive occupation of Israel. And it got me thinking because I think you mentioned that it would be interesting to see beyond that what kind of forms of cultural production are there in representation. But at the same time, it, it also struck me as a challenge because when something like an occupation is so totalizing, how can you avoid that? And again, it came through in that video, I think you mentioned where there was so many layer, layers of pushing back against various powers. Even one of them was a kind of uh, attack at, for example, Israel's pinkwashing. So it, it struck me as a challenge in that regard. Uh, and I think, you know, my sort of overarching sense of this is just that it, it suggests that there's a lot of work cut out, I think, for this endeavor about feminist media studies in the region, because just by platform, by country, by particular social uh, geopolitical context, it all raises questions of, of not just representation, but the possibilities of representation. You know, I, I, I think, again, with the new media, are, are, are certain people engaging in forms of, of, of uh, producing cultural texts is that something that can be done in certain places, but not others, on certain mediums and not others? Is, for example, uh, your re research in Palestine, Polly, is this something that's quite um, distinct to the Levant area? Whereas, you know, if we go back to, to, to Sinai in Egypt and the, and the production of cereals in, 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 in even the Gulf, who... And you, you mentioned Hollywood, Dali, and this got me struck. Hollywood's always been Hollywood. And you said, well, maybe Nile was once at Hollywood, but it moves around a lot. Why is that the case? Why hasn't there been this consistent uh, role, place in, in, in Arab cinema, for example, where there's been this kind of cultural hegemony? Why isn't it consistent? Is that because of politics? Is it because of dynamics? How has the role of women changed over time in terms of representation and participation? Uh, so I think all these, uh, the, both these presentations with their case studies both on a national level but also in terms of technology and platform just raise uh, or at least kind of underscore the importance uh, and the need to to focus more on, on on feminist media studies in the region and i think again going back to this idea of theorizing um and maybe this is a good point to end on is that uh, Polly mentioned maybe the the chat a lot of the theorizing um or modern theorizing about things like neoliberal feminism happened in the global north why has this been less so in the global south, but particularly the Middle East? And, and I think this is an important question to ask ourselves, because it's certainly in my own experience doing research, um, there's resistance to feminism, or the, even the word feminist everywhere. And we're seeing this particularly now in the post-truth age with the rise of right-wing populists, and this is a global phenomenon. But we're also seeing it, um, in, in my opinion, from what I see on social media online resistance to even the word feminist and feminism and this pushback against it. So I wonder how much this actually also informs some of the maybe um, um, the, the, the lack of empirical and, and theoretical research on this in the region. And I think that's something to think about going forward. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much for those talks. And um, I don't want to ask questions. I have the specific ones, but I think there's plenty um, uh, being asked in the Q&A that, that Sophie then can direct at Dahlia and Polly. So thank you for that. Thank, Thank you, so Mark. Much. Yeah. Thank you very much for your enlightening comments.
Yeah, thank you, Mark. Well, actually, I think we can take um, a short time to uh, that each of you, Dalia and Polly, respond to. I mean, Mark, you raised many really interesting points uh, that, that each of them we could we we could, and I hope we will discuss in in much depth about the platforms, about the audiences, about the role of the state, the possibilities of resistance the national frameworks or going beyond the national frameworks about theorizing post-feminism, uh, neoliberal feminism, et cetera. So I think a lot a lot of really interesting points raised here. I just wanna give the chance to Polly and Dalia each to respond to maybe the point that in Mark's uh, comments spoke most to you or two mm -hmm. points that you think relate in particular. I mean, I think that for example, the role of of the state um, and, uh, and this maybe state censorship or state guidance in particular forms of representation was more guided towards Dalia and maybe the other point on um, the role of new media and cultural productions uh, and, and uh, possibilities of uh, uh, or, or um, existence of post-feminist or neoliberal feminist um, media strategies um, uh, maybe more to, towards Polly, mm. but uh, please choose uh, choose as you like. Uh, Dalia, do, would you like to go first? Then after this, I will come to the Q and A questions and post them to uh, post them to each of you. Okay, sure. Um, right. So uh, the the issue of censorship, of course, um, has been a challenge all along uh, in any cultural field in uh, the Middle East, censorship has been taken into consideration. The ultimate goal of uh, um, cinema producers uh, or writers or, uh, uh, you know, uh, drama producers, they want to connect with their audience. Yeah, so they do not want their work to be censored. And they had to find ways to go around censorship issues in order to be able to show their work, okay? In some cases, in some eras, the, even the most authoritarian regimes in the region uh, allowed a margin of freedom in cinema, actually. I'll give you an example. Uh, in the 1960s in Egypt, uh, under the Nasser regime, um, the um, General Organization uh, for Cinema was established under the auspices of the state in 1963, and it stayed uh, on for about nine years. And during that time, some incredible auteur filmmakers appeared on the scene, and some very powerful films also uh, were shown and released. Uh, this doesn't uh, mean that uh, uh, other scripts were banned, for example, or marginalized or uh, censored. But uh, what I want to get at is that uh, this uh, big uh, notion of an authoritarian regime, yes, it's overbearing, it exists. Uh, censorship uh, has been uh, a massive issue uh, for artists. Uh, however, um, the innovations that um, uh, film producers have uh, created to um, cut through this censorship is also a case in point. 
and women have played an incredible role in this. Um, for example, uh, the, the use of uh, symbolism sometimes, the use of metaphor in uh, the, the storyline, uh, creating uh, detective storylines to critique uh, the society, um, so many different types and forms. Uh, another uh, very crucial issue for filmmakers and producers uh, in the cinema industry in particular, uh, all over the region, has been funding. Okay, where do you get funding from? Uh, I mentioned in my presentation at the very beginning of cinema, there were female producers who put their own money and resources, financial resources, uh, into making film. They believed uh, in this uh, uh, profession. They uh, embraced it. Um, so oftentimes, um, filmmakers establish their own production companies, firstly, to uh, fund their own scripts without the interference of uh, outside producers or to evade uh, some censorship rules and so on. Uh, so uh, I would, uh, you know, approach the issue of uh, the authoritarian regime and its overbearing uh, uh, power with skepticism because it is not absolute. Yeah, and uh, it opens, as you, uh, as you said, it opens so many doors and possibilities uh, of representation. I think this is a crucial uh, statement. I just want to add uh, one point quickly uh, about uh, the theorization in regards to feminist uh, uh, issues and positions. Uh, in fact, in the region, in the Middle East and North Africa, I think um, women uh, have participated with incredible agency in uh, um, introducing new theories. Arab women, Iranian women, uh, this whole uh, uh, scheme of Islamic feminism, for example. Uh, so uh, there is a, a big body of works in the original languages. Okay, it, uh, they have not been translated yet. And on an occasion like the International Women's Day, we really have to acknowledge the importance of this work and give tribute to these brave women who have gone against the grain and produced very uh, important theories uh, uh, about uh, their own societies and gender uh, issues and shifting of gender roles. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think this should not be marginalized at all and should be celebrated and possibly uh, looked upon uh, from the lens of the original languages as well, Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and so on. Yeah, thank you so much, Daria. This is, this is an important point and it would of course be uh, really interesting and important to find those sources in Arabic, Persian, Kurdish, etc. that does this um, media analysis, that does this particular analysis of cultural production and what kind of um, theorizing arguments and analysis have emerged uh, through this local lens. 
Just a quick follow-up uh, to, to you, Dalia, from because the questions um, in the chat actually relate so closely to the issue of, um, uh, of state control. You have two questions uh, from Mohammed Al-Hawadi. What about women's representation on TV dramas, especially given the control that governments have over TV channels? And also from Amr Al-Adwan, um, he has a question regarding the impact of state and self-censorship on the portrayal of women in cinema and how this could affect the depiction of actual reality to glo global audiences. Mm. So just to get a little bit in depth in these two specific points on TV dramas and the depiction of uh, actual reality to global audiences, given this. Yeah, I think these are great questions. Uh, so the representation uh, of women uh, in, in TV drama series this is, uh, of course, a different genre from cinema altogether because uh, the muselselet are uh, very much consumed uh, amongst uh, Arab audiences in particular, uh, and uh, it has a massive uh, uh, audience, uh, more so than cinema, actually, uh, and there is a lot of money uh, put into it uh, yes, there are, uh, uh, you know, the production of uh, certain TV drama series sometimes or in certain eras are possibly completely controlled by the state. Um, how do we uh, overcome this? Um, I think by uh, bringing into the picture parallel production companies, uh, possibly more independent production companies. Uh, I think the control on drama series uh, might uh, even be more uh, formidable, stricter than on cinema because uh, it has a larger audience. So independent production companies uh, can produce uh, you know, maybe uh, more autonomous uh, uh, storylines. Uh, uh, the distribution can be uh, in unconventional uh, uh, areas. In regards to um, uh, the self-censorship, yes, this is a very important question. And uh, uh, artists and uh, film filmmakers and writers also uh, sometimes find themselves censoring their own work in order to be able to publish or to release their works uh, to uh, their audiences. Uh, does this uh, contradict the reality? Uh, it's, uh, it's a complex question. It's a difficult question. Sometimes, uh, um, yes, maybe there, there are compromises. So I acknowledge uh, that there are compromises, of course. And you know that uh, cinema in the Arab world is a very commercial industry as well. So they want to make profit. Not uh, all films are, have, uh, you know, serious and complex storylines. Uh, so self-censorship uh, is an important issue. Uh, but uh, uh, some filmmakers uh, actually decide to leave their countries altogether to be able to produce the kind of films uh, they uh, aim to produce. Uh, so we find some filmmakers residing uh, in, in the West or in the US uh, or other parts of the world 
Um, so uh, it's uh, it's a, a rather complex question, and it doesn't have a yes or no. If you see what I mean, uh, for, I think it's our colleague Aimer who asked this uh, question. Yeah, thank you, Dalia. Uh, that's great. Um, so I'll pass uh, to to Polly to answer to some of the points that Mark raised, and maybe I can ask you also, Polly, to address one question that we that we have in the chat. Um, uh, what do you think about the relationship between the representation of femininity and social media, such as the self-representation of fashion micro-celebrities on Instagram? I think this speaks a little bit to the whole uh, discussion you have started on post-feminism, neoliberal feminism. So maybe you can somehow also <laughs> address this question. Thank yeah. you, Paul. Thanks, Sophie. So I'm, I want to respond to um, Mark's point um, on platforms, but... Before that, um, I just wanted to say, Dalia, thanks so much for all of your, um, your, your, your comments. But to be clear, I wasn't suggesting that there's no feminist theorizing in the Middle East. Um, of course, you know, there's huge histories of um, anti-colonial feminisms, leftist feminisms, Marxist feminisms, Islamic feminisms emerging in the Middle East from the Middle East written in Arabic. My point was more specific um, and more related to feminist media studies as a um, discipline of within media and communications that my, my point was that there are these three kind of dominant concepts, um, Sarah Bernay Wise's popular feminism, Catherine Rotterberg's neoliberal feminism, and Ros Gill's post-feminism that have become, in the, con in the context of media and communications, very dominant ways for theorizing the relationship between femininities, masculinities, and, and um, social media. So my point was not that there's no Arab feminisms or Persian feminisms or Kurdish feminisms. I mean, that, uh, of, of course there are. Um, my point was that in this project um, and in my own work, um, I'm interested in thinking about how dominant concepts in feminist media studies, this popular feminism, post-feminism um, and neoliberal feminism are or are not traveling to the Middle East. So I'm wanting to question how far these kind of very dominant concepts um, are or are not relevant for studying culture production, social media, media in general in the Middle East. So this was my very specific point um, that I just wanted to clarify. Um, and yeah, to go back to Mark's points on, um, I think I want to touch on the issue of platforms in Palestine in particular, because I think it's, it's, um, it's a very interesting site. I mean, Palestine, the question of platforms in Palestine for really drawing out the ways that platforms or social media in general are sites that often actively reproduce offline power hierarchies. So by this, um, what I want to say is that there's been very fascinating work by people like Sophia Nobel, who have theorized the way that um, the digital, digital platforms are um, sites that do not kind of, um, uh, that are not sites that are kind of absent of gender, race and class hierarchies. In her book, um, Algorithms of Oppression, she does this beautiful job of, of really drawing out how gender, race and class hierarchies are reenacted, um, reinforced, produced online. Um, so I, I think, um, that, you know, that in and of itself is a really important way or, 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 or really important mechanism to push back on this idea that platforms um, kind of are inherently liberatory. If we think about the scholarship that exploded after the Arab Spring, whereby, you know, there was all this work on Twitter being the sound piece of the, the revolution, all of these sorts of things. I think um, the question of Palestine or the context of Palestine, sorry, is a really, really, really important site for pushing back on this idea that platforms are liberatory. Um, 
and by this I mean that in in Palestine the digital um, is so clearly a site where offline um, hierarchies are being actively reproduced in multiple ways so on the one hand you know you have um, you have this kind of very obvious way that the Israel um, uses kind of um, cyber cyber warfare in general to kind of monitor constrain um, censor Palestinian activists um, who are trying to post videos on so on a, on on um, YouTube, for example, um, this kind of Israeli state surveillance of, of, of the digital is also actively being reinforced by, by YouTube itself. So you have the platform itself, YouTube, um, being or becoming an actor in the kind of Zionist project of, of um, colonizing Palestine. So I think that this, this, this in and of itself is, is, is a really important kind of um, way to push back on this idea that, that platforms are emancipatory, which is kind of, which well, which dominated a lot of scholarship on social media in the kind of early 2010s in, in the context of the region specifically. Um, the PA, of course, also uses um, social media and the digital to monitor um, and, and um, constrain civil unrest within um, the OPT. Um, so you have this kind of dual authoritarian surveillance of the digital, uh, kind of state colonial surveillance of the digital, um, which often, and just to take us back to our, our conversation today, often operates through the lens of gender and sexuality. Um, so um, young adults who post, uh, well, who use social media to, to share kind of, um, I don't know, like videos about trans rights, these sorts of things are either um, kind of can become sites through which Israel can um, use unconventional performances of gender and sexuality to kind of um, threaten people's livelihoods in the context of um, uh, the name has um, of um, not conscription of um, kind of cooperating with the Israeli state on the threat that you know you're performing gender and sexuality differently. So a lot of this surveillance is often kind of taking place through gender and sexuality, which I think is interesting um, for our purposes more generally. Um, so I think that the, the question of platforms are really interesting because they highlight the kind of Janus um, face nature of the digital in general. Of course, social media enables young Palestinians to connect with one another, which is, you know, in a context of Palestine, hardly needs stating that it is so important when the kind of politics of physical mobility is so clearly um, and so kind of powerfully constrained that, of course, social media enables people to connect with one another across borders um, in the context of musicians. Of course, social media gives people access to opportunities for reaching fans, sharing music, um, perhaps kind of being in touch with um, like, you know, um, music promoters, these sorts of things. But at the same time, the digital platforms are, all, are also a site of um, of kind of domestic PA control, settler colonial Israeli control, and now even global control when you have YouTube and Facebook as platforms that are actively reenacting the kind of um, colonial politics of the Israeli state or the violences of, um, of the Israeli state, the Israeli state by kind of very, very clearly um, prohibiting pro-Palestinian content, content from circulating on, on, um, on, on things like YouTube. So I think, yeah, for me, um, this kind of question of platforms is really important in the context of Palestine because it, as I said, highlights the, the very kind of fragmentary um, way in which platforms even operate, which then raises clear questions to kind of <laughs> segue into your other point, Mark, about audiences and kind of producers more generally um, to produce a kind of video or a, a, 
cultural text that is critical of gender and sexuality, for example, normally mandates that the producer has some level of social and or economic capital that, that is able to con um, contain the threat of social surveillance that kind of critiquing um, particularly hierarchies around sexualities may enact. So usually what I'm trying to say is that the people who can become visible on social media, on platforms like YouTube, are usually middle class um, actors who have already the kind of pre-existing social and, and economic capital to, con to contain the threat that, or the kind of social threat or the risk of social death that may come with being read as a kind of um, visible out queer subject in the context of Palestine. So I think, yeah, just to, to kind of reiterate this, this kind of question of the ways in which the digital, the ways in which platforms are sites that actively reproduce, if not shape and reinforce offline hierarchies around gender, race and class sexuality um, is just so kind of important for ground in, in the context of Palestine because, you know, it's platforms under, in, in the context of colonialization of, of colonization and the kind of violences that come with that. Um, and so, Sophie, what was the other question about um, representation? Uh, the other question- Oh, social media, the Insta, the influencers. Yeah, I think, um, thank you for the question. I think it's a really, really interesting and really important Point. And in my more recent work on um, consumer media, I'm looking at the moment at the ways that the neoliberal shift in Palestine is um, or is not reshaping ideas about gender and sexuality. And this issue of influences is one that keeps coming up, this kind of rise in, um, especially young female uh, entrepreneurs or, or I mean, influences using Instagram um, to promote their kind of um, their their kind of, I don't know, capitalist aspirations I think to earn it I mean on the one hand it's to earn a living right but it's also to attract fame and um this kind of very individualized project of self-making um and self-performing through for me this very post-feminist lens and market kind of chimes a little bit with what you were saying many young women that I've interviewed will say things like I'm not a feminist um and I don't want to be associated with the feminine but you know my social Instagram uh, my so uh, my Instagram account is a means through which I'm empowering myself because I'm earning money through sponsorship, for example. So you see this post-feminist um, kind of assertion of um, subjectivity, whereby a practice that could be read as sort of pseudo-feminism is disavowed as being feminist on the grounds that, that, that these young women don't need feminism anymore. They've already kind of empowered themselves through the very act of, of um, establishing a kind of Instagram platform. So I think this issue, I, I mean, I don't have a direct answer. I'm aware of slightly talking around the question, but I think it, it's a very interesting, this question of influencers, the kind of rising cult of individuality that is emergent through um, the idea that kind of visibility is empowerment, that representation is always progress. I think it's a really important site for pushing back on the ways that um, online performances of identity are kind of part of, or at least intermingle with this kind of neoliberal project of selfhood whereby the self is understood always as an individual as choice making as autonomous and um self maximizing um and and kind of and endlessly self-protecting through um through the body and through yeah i mean influencer culture so i'm sorry that was a tiny bit waffled that answer but um my point was i mean absolutely i think it's such an important site to think about the role that influencers are playing in 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 the region and and asking this question as to how far are these forms of self-representation um, reenacting this kind of neoliberal idea of personhood, of individuality, of, of um, endlessly perfecting the self through digital practices. 
Um, so I will leave that there. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Polly. Actually, we've hit uh, the clock of uh, 8.30 in, in Doha. So um, unfortunately, our webinar is coming to an end. I just wanted to end um, with a note that uh, one, um, there are many more interesting questions in the in the chat. We have had questions that relate to transnational forms of solidarity and what role might the online space uh, play for women to, from different places uh, to connect and collaborate. That's again an, a very interesting kind of research question that uh, a project in feminist media studies of the Middle East might take up on, uh, activism online and uh, transnational forms of solidarity and activism. We've had more questions related to um, uh, neoliberal uh, feminism or post-feminism and the question whether this focus on individual agency and autonomy um, might be risky uh, taking into, take, or risky because it might neglect us to look at the very severe and hard structures that also um, uh, retain and, uh, and discriminate uh, people. Um, particularly in the global south. And we have had questions on violence. Uh, um, why does the current Arab cinema not reflect the, the, uh, the different forms of violence against women that are raging? So I think- Can I, can I just say a couple of words about this question? Because <laughs> I think it's really important. Okay. Uh, if Samar is still with us, I, uh, okay. So I think uh, drama series have addressed this question possibly more than uh, cinema uh, in our present time, but uh, there are different forms of violence as well. There is the physical violence, but there is the psychological violence. And I think uh, some um, uh, Arab filmmakers, women filmmakers, want to explore this psychological violence even more so than the physical. Um, mm. So I think it's still an area that the, it's being you know, expanded upon, but uh, it is there. The, the, your question is very important. The, uh, this subject is uh, very much on the cultural scene. Thank you, Sophie. Yeah, no, thank you, Dalia, for, for briefly responding to this. I mean, this all shows us that um, there's much more to explore. Uh, we can't just simply celebrate uh, different forms of media as a place of emancipation or freedom or individuality. Um, at the same time, it's not also all controlled and uh, self and censored, self-censored. Rather, it's a um, uh, it's a space of different kinds of performances and ambig ambiguities. Um, with that note, on the ambiguity, I think. Um, uh, I hope very much that our group will stay together. I thank the audience, the really many people who, who joined. We nearly hit 100. Uh, I think we did hit at some point 100 uh, altogether. So uh, I think there's huge interest in this topic. Uh, let's stay tuned and hopefully we will all join uh, together, uh, together soon again to uh, continue this discussion. Thanks to everyone for joining and for your excellent presentation. Thank, thank you, Sophie. Sophie. Thank you, Polly. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for thanks. joining. Happy Women's Day. Bye. Happy Bye. Day. Bye. Bye.